Wonderful. We're going to turn to our Bible reading. I think the person I think is reading isn't here, so you'll have to, you'll have to stick with me. Apologies. And we're in 1 Timothy chapter 1, which is on 1191 of um, the Bibles around you. 1191. So we're reading 1 Timothy chapter 1 from the beginning, from verse 1, page 1191. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these, and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. This is God's word. Thanks, Scott. Morning, everyone. If we've not met, uh, my name's Matt Fuller. I'm the a vicar here, tempting. <laughs> Is it naughty when Scott says, oh, there's no reader. I better do it. I was really tempted to run out the door and see what would happen then. Oh, there's no preacher. Um... <laughs> um... Fortunately, my conscience is a little clearer than my uh, mischief. So uh, here we go. One Timothy for uh, much of this term. We'll be uh, looking at this uh, little letter. One or two would know. I, I've done this in Bible studies pretty much every year. I've been here in the little PTS course, but we've never actually preached through it. It seemed about time to do that. Let me pray as we begin. Our great God and Father, we thank you for the variety of the scriptures. Thank you that you're a good God who gives us exactly what we need. Here is a very, very practical letter telling us all sorts of things about how to run church life and uh, the details of how we care for one another, how we appoint people in the church. It's very practical, so helpful to have. But Father, above all, would we see clearly you and your concern in this letter? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. which in many senses is a leading prayer. How would you answer this simple sentence, very simple sentence? Um, God is... 
and your answer. God is, oh, we're actually doing this for real, go for it. (laughs) I think the answer you give, in part depends what's going on in life at the moment, doesn't it? I mean, God is kind, some would say. Oh, he's been so kind to me. Yeah, sure. God is bewildering. God is distant. I don't know what you'd say at this moment in time. Partly it's subjective. Partly what you've reading in the, what you've been reading in your devotions. It may be that frames it. I mean, there's a, a thousand different answers that the Bible would give to that simple sentence or uh, words to finish it off. But in one Timothy, the answer is quite clear. God is savior. God is a savior. Now, Christian doctrine, of course, is incredibly uh, complicated, wonderful, deep. You can do PhDs in a a, a trillion different areas in biblical uh, understanding. But some things are actually quite simple. And here it is. God is a savior. In fact, chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle by Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. So God the Father there, chapter 1, verse 1, is a Savior. And we'll see throughout this letter, there's a great deal of emphasis upon that in 1 Timothy, chapter 2, verse 3. Pray for those in authority. This is good and pleases God our Savior. Chapter 4, verse 10. We labor and strive in ministry because we put our hope in the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Don't get distracted from that. In many ways, it's the simple message of 1 Timothy. Don't lose your focus on what is really central in the Christian faith. God is a Savior. God the Father is a Savior. Or in chapter 1, verse 15, next time, um, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Paul can declare himself the worst. Don't get distracted. Of course, we can do that in our own lives. There are plenty of things which consume our thinking. Anxieties about work, concerns about children, uh, thoughts about money, all sorts of things can distract us, yes, but this is the most important thing. But actually in 1 Timothy, it's more the church collectively are getting distracted. They've lost focus on, look, this is what unites us as a church. This is what Christianity is all about. God is a saviour. And in Ephesus, where Timothy is, they've just got a little distracted. They've lost their focus. They're talking about other things. They're falling out over other things. And Paul says, could I remind you, God is saviour. Obsess about that. Talk about that. Be concerned with that truth. As I say, we'll spend most of the term then, um, uh, next couple of months, in this letter of 1 Timothy, one of the three 
pastoral epistles is what they get called that Paul wrote to his lieutenants, so 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus. Uh, lots concerned with how to organize church. This one is written to, uh, to Timothy, his favorite son, about his favorite church, probably the church in Ephesus. You read in the book of Acts, Paul was there probably just shy of three years in Acts 18 and 19. You get the longest speech recorded by Paul in Acts 20 to the elders at Ephesus, where he warns them with tears in his eyes that some from amongst you, the leaders, will actually become false teachers and pull Christ's sheep away from him. Some will distort the truth. He's warned them of that. And now a few years later, this is precisely what has happened. And so the, the sort of topping and tailing of the letter, you can see it in chapter 1, verse 3 today. Paul says to his lieutenant Timothy, I urge you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus. Why? Here's the command. So that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer. Lots of other things take place in this letter. It's not just about that subject uh, directly or related to it. But by the time you get to the end of the letter, chapter 6 and verse 20, it's clear that this is the dominant theme. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and in so doing have departed from the faith. So this sort of warning at the beginning and the end of the letter Timothy, you've got to stop these false teachers. And at the end, Timothy, a lot of people have wandered away. You, you, don't you do that. You stand up for what is true. Or, as I've scribbled on the bottom of your uh, handout, if you've got sight of it, uh, this different language that gets used throughout the letter. People have wandered, 1 verse 6. Uh, they've shipwrecked their faith, 1 19. They've abandoned the faith, 4 verse 1. They've strayed after Satan, 5 15. Wandered from the faith, 6 20. 6 21, wandered away. But all those, those words need to interpret one another. It's not just they've wandered away by accident. They've abandoned, they've strayed, they've shipwrecked. So 1 Timothy, Paul was reminding Timothy and the church at Ephesus, can I remind you what's the most important thing about, being, about the Christian faith? God is a saviour. Therefore, in the letter, can you stop those false teachers who are dragging people away and obsessing about other stuff? And can you raise up good leaders? That's the strategy. Okay. If you want to have a church which is focused upon God as Savior, stop the bad teachers, raise up good leaders. And there are lots of other things to organize in church life as well. But in simple terms, that's what's going on. And you get that introduced here in uh, chapter 1, where uh, if we put it under these two headings, and the first one's the longest you can see, stop the false teaching that brings controversy, rather encourage sound doctrine that brings love. Okay, so those two things we'll look at this morning, that's chapter 1, 1 to 11, stop the false teaching that brings controversy, but secondly, encourage sound doctrine that brings love. And you do need to know that this is a loving thing. First, we we'll spend most of our time here. Stop then the false teaching that brings controversy. Chapter 1, verse 1. This is clearly a public letter. 
but written in terms to Timothy. So chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. You don't put that just to a mate. Um, Paul is establishing straight up, I am an apostle, Christ appointed me, I have authority. He doesn't need to tell Timothy that. He's, telling, he's reminding the church of that. And yet it is also written to Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. And then here comes the instruction to Timothy, which, again, I presume is meant to be read out to the whole church, for the whole church to hear. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay in Ephesus so you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer. Command them. Order them. This is not a time for a polite conversation. This is not a time for the English, I'm sorry, I've got to go to work, and so I haven't got time for this conversation. It's command. Three little things about what's taking place here, this false teaching. First, their teaching is speculative. So end of verse 3, command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. So what it seems is that uh, there's a psalm in the church in Ephesus, and they're going to the Old Testament and saying, look, I don't think we've really plumbed the depths of this genealogy. Look, this, these obscure names and characters, we've missed the point. This is really where the action is at. A little bit like, uh, uh, this may or may not work for you, uh, you'll be aware, Disney, um, you've heard of them. Uh, they bought um, Star Wars, the, the franchise, you've heard of that, um, and um, decided to squeeze every little penny they can possibly get out of it. So all of a sudden, obscure characters uh, that just pop up in a film get sort of dragged front and centre and given their own miniseries, and, um, and you can pay lots of money to, uh, to watch such a thing. Uh, so they've taken obscure characters and raised them up. Now, look, if, if you're Disney and Star Wars and you own the rights, you're entitled to do such a thing, and maybe some of them are good and maybe some of them are pretty boring, but anyway, that's uh, by the by. But it's that sort of thing. And actually, we've got them recorded. You can go and read them online if you so desire. There are examples from the first century that uh, some of the Pharisees in, in Jesus' time and afterwards, they wrote these books, the Book of Jubilees, the Antiquities of Philo. And uh, they take it like an obscure Old Testament character and retell like what happened in the Exodus from the perspective of this obscure character. And it's given a much more pharisaical, legalistic bent to it. So we've got examples of that going on. They elevate little details and, and, and distort the truth. It's, Paul describes it as speculative. And you might find yourself thinking, well, what's the appeal? I mean, you've got the Old Testament. Why have a slightly novel rewriting of it from someone else's angle? But it doesn't take much thought, does it? All of us like um, perhaps a little speculation. Oh, interesting. I mean, there is a reason that the gutter press exists, right? Oh, maybe this, maybe that. Uh, a little speculative detail about things. And everyone likes a little bit of insider knowledge. You can imagine some in Ephesus, the false teachers saying, been a Christian for a few years. Yeah. 
Having the same struggles? Yeah. We've discovered the secret. It's just buried in this genealogy in 1 Chronicles. The secret. Excellent. No more just going through the Christian life and good days and bad days. The silver bullet that moves me on to the higher level. How exciting. You can see how that sort of works. I read the other day, uh, slightly random thing to be reading, but anyway, it's all right because it becomes an example for you today, um, uh, about the, the seven Christian books, apart from the Bible, seven Christian books that have sold more than 10 million copies. So there's only seven, so you, you're doing well to sell more than 10 million copies of a book if you're a Christian writer, seven of them. And the majority of them are rubbish. You know, a couple of them are quite good, you know, uh, very sensible, but most of them are rubbish. How do you think, why, why have these sold so many copies? when they're rubbish. Oh, because it's just new and... Oh, look. So um, the one that sold the most, apparently, is... Do you remember this one? It was about 20 years ago. Old now, I think, now. The Prayer of Jabez. Anyone remember that? Um, uh, one or two remember it. The Prayer of Jabez. So the author took an obscure prayer from 1 Chronicles chapter 4. Oh, that you would bless me, Lord, and enlarge my territory, that your hand would be with me and you'd keep me from any evil or pain. And uh, the author said, yes, that, that's the key to Christian living. Who would have known? Jabez, not Jesus. Jabez is the key to Christian living, buried in 1 Chronicles 4. If you just say this every day, several times a day, like a mantra, then everything will go well in your life. And whatever you want, you'll get it. And people went, brilliant. Well, I like that. I get whatever I want. Yeah. Yeah. 1 Chronicles, where is that? Where is that? Where is that? Oh, stuff it. Just let me read the book, The Prayer of Jabez, which basically just says, just keep saying it over and over and over and over again. And it sold millions of copies. Until the author got a little bit carried away, and uh, he moved to Africa and claimed in the name of Jabez, The Prayer of Jabez, that he would end all poverty and AIDS. And unsurprisingly, a year later, sort of left. Um, A bit embarrassed because life is a bit more complicated than that, and the key to the Scriptures is not Jabez. It is the fact that Jesus is a saviour. It's sold 10 million copies. Or another one, I, do, do, I, I did remember this one as well. This is a little more, about 15 years ago, ago. Heaven is for real. A little boy's astounding story of his trip to heaven and back. Everyone read that one? Uh, again, it's one of the seven books that sold over 10 million copies. And actually, not only that, it spawned a whole genre of books of people saying, yeah, well, actually, I went to heaven as well and came back. The weird thing being all these books about people who've gone to heaven and back, they all disagreed about what heaven was like, which is a bit weird. Um, and you might think to yourself, hmm, how do they all disagree? But anyway, seven million copies. The little boy, I mean, he's a little boy, so, I mean, that's got the cute factor as well, right? The little boy who went to heaven and came back. Seven, over 10 million copies sold. And then when he was no longer a little boy but a young man, he said, actually, I made it all up. Completely made it all up. Me and Dad wrote it one day for a sort of joke, and then it got published, and we made millions, and we thought, well, best keep quiet. Um, and now I'm a bit embarrassed. Yeah? What's the appeal? Oh, it's a little speculative. Let me, let, me, let, let me into secrets that even Jesus didn't know. None of the apostles knew. What he, like, let me describe things that aren't in the Bible. It's all very speculative, and it's twaddle. 
says Paul. You have a choice between these sort of speculative theologies that will stir up controversy, verse 4, they'll divide, or what God has revealed in the Scriptures. And if you focus on the latter, that will, verse 4, advance God's work. But you see, that's the choice. A speculative theology someone makes up. It's new, it's novel, it's exciting. Promises or what God has revealed, which will actually advance God's work. That's your choice. But speculative teaching will always have some popularity, verse 4. Another thing about these teachers, they've ignored their conscience. So verse 5, the, the goal of this command, the command to stop the false teachers, is love. And love comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. So these false teachers, they've departed from a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. Can I say, that's just worth knowing. It's overwhelmingly the case throughout these three pastoral epistles. Where does false teaching come from? It's not academic. It's false living produces false teaching. Do you see what he's saying here? It's, I want to live in a way contrary to the Scriptures, therefore I will change what is taught. It's behavior drives doctrine. It's, I want to live immorally, therefore I'll distort the Scriptures. That is overwhelmingly what normally happens. Again, about, about 20 years ago, uh, undoubtedly the, 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 the leader of evangelical Christianity in this country, and, and a number will remember, was a man called uh, Roy Clements. Everyone recognized him as the best preacher in the country, uh, the best strategic leader in the country, uh, uh, teaching in Cambridge. He drove all the conferences, had that word alive. He was the natural leader. Everyone f- followed him because he just had it. Um, and people looked to him. I remember going to one conference for, for, for ministers, and uh, he was the speaker, and so you get a good turnout when Roy was speaking, and, um, and he said, we said one or two things. So, oh, yeah, I think, I wonder if as Christians we've just been too strict on um, sexual ethics and uh, too strict on marriage, and we should encourage more people to get divorced uh, and pursue second relationships uh, uh, and second marriages. I was thinking, what? What is he saying? That's weird. But oh, wow, it's Roy, so maybe we, we do need to go away and think about this. But no, we don't need it. What is he, what is he talking about? It was all, and everyone sort of left scratching their heads going, what's going on there? That's very weird. And then a month later, he left his family, left his wife, left his kids, and set up home, a new home, someone else. Okay. Okay, <laughs> okay. Yes, it was all nonsense. But he, his conscience had just, he'd walked away from a biblically informed conscience and therefore what he started teaching publicly flowed from that. Ah. Abandon a pure heart that wants to listen to the revealed word of God 
if you ignore what your conscience is telling you, you'll be in trouble. You'll go to meaningless talk, false teaching. So you get it numerous times here. Um, so here they've walked away from their conscience. We'll see it later on in the letter, chapter 4, verse 2. The teachings come from hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared, numbed. They've just allowed that to happen. By contrast, Timothy, we'll see, chapter 1, verse 19, you need to hold on to faith and a good conscience. Chapter 3, verse 9, you want leaders, your elders, to hold on to the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. You, you want people who just do what is right, who behave in ways which are right, because they'll hold on to the truth. But immorality will lead to teaching being distorted. It's just what happens. So look, they're teaching speculative, they've ignored their conscience, and they confidently talk nonsense. Uh, verse 7, these people, they want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. Don't be thrown, don't be confused by people talking with confidence. Anyone can do that for a while. Is it what the Bible says? They confidently talk twaddle. And there's certainly plenty of people around who do that today. So verse 7, they want to be teachers of the law. I think law in its most general sense, the, the whole of the Old Testament, the Torah, because they're, they're taking stuff out of the uh, genealogies here. And Paul says law is good, verse 8, if it's used properly, not for finding myths, not for speculative new ideas, but for ethics. I mean, there are plenty of other... This is not, uh, the only thing that Paul would say about the use of the law generally uh, in his letters, uh, law is good, verse 3, for uh, bringing knowledge of sin, chapter, excuse me, Romans 3, for bringing knowledge of sin, or uh, Galatians 4, it was used to lead, like a schoolmaster, to lead the Jewish people to their knowledge that they needed a saviour, or Romans chapter 13, it informs us how best to love one another, plenty of things. But here his point is that law can... It should be used morally, not speculatively. It can be used, verse 9, to restrain lawbreakers and rebels. That's one sense of it. But use the law for moral instruction, not for wild speculation, is his point here. And so he lists, it's a slightly strange order, but he lists essentially the Ten Commandments. That's what's going on in verses 8, 9, and 10. Not exhaustively, because he says at the end of verse 10, for slave traders, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel. The leaders in Ephesus, they're opening the Bible, and they're talking nonsense, but with such confidence don't be thrown by that. Don't be cowed by confidence. I don't know if you've uh, seen anything online, but uh, you know that uh, just after Easter, I went to the GAFCON conference. I think more about this on Wednesday, the prayer meeting uh, on uh, Wednesday night this week. Uh, the GAFCON conference, a global Anglican future conference uh, in Kigali, 53 different nations, uh, 3,200 representatives of the Anglican church, representing probably 80 to 85% of all Anglicans worldwide. 
and uh, they produced a statement at the end of it. Uh, the, the, the sort of newsworthy headline in one sense is that they said that they no longer recognised the Archbishop of Canterbury. But in one sense, most striking was in the middle of their long statement about what was going on in the Anglican Communion, just a reasserting of basic truths about the Bible. So this little paragraph, we may have it uh, on screen, Ali. God's good word is uh, the, the rule of our lives as disciples of Jesus Christ and is the final authority in the church. It grounds, energizes, directs our mission in the world. The fellowship we enjoy with our risen and ascended Lord is nourished as we trust God's word, obey it, and encourage each other to allow it to shape each area of our lives. This fellowship with Jesus and one another is broken when we turn aside from God's word or attempt to, very simple statement, but quite profound, or attempt to reinterpret it in any way that overturns the plain reading of the text in its canonical context and so deny its truthfulness, clarity, sufficiency, and thereby its authority. Just don't be... Don't be intimidated by the confidence which, which, with which someone asserts something. Read what the Bible says. <laughs> uh, historic biblical faith says you, a believer can read the plain meaning of a text. If someone performs smoke and mirror in front of your eyes to say what you think it says, it doesn't really say. In fact, it says the opposite. It says precisely what the 21st century world of the West says. If they perform smoke and mirrors like that, no, this is just Reformation doctrine. It's just historic church doctrine. So don't be intimidated. These false teachers will confidently talk nonsense. But just because it's confident, it's still nonsense. Stop the false teaching that brings controversy. More briefly, the contrast is this. And more of the, the, really next time is more of the positive. But encourage the sound doctrine that brings love. Because that's what it does. Verse 10, end of verse 10. Uh, the law is useful for, and whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God which he entrusted to me. So law rightly understood, it can restrict immorality. It can uh, prevent things contrary to healthy or sound doctrine. And it conforms with the gospel. But here again is a very simple choice. Teach speculative nonsense, it'll lead to controversy and division. Teach healthy doctrine in line with the gospel, and it brings glory to the blessed God. It will produce unity amongst believers who love one another. And Paul, he wants Timothy and the church at Ephesus and us to hear clearly, I, I know it's no fun when you have to stand up and say they're wrong, they're liars, they're distorting the truth. But you have to do it because you're loving everyone else when you do that. The intention of this, the goal of this command, verse 5, is love. Now we find it hard, but we see it in all sorts of areas. So a stupid example, uh, a recurrent occurrence at our house, particularly post-Easter, with uh, Easter eggs lying around the place, the dog. The dog is about to jump on the table again and eat some chocolate. And I will say, stop off. 
and occasionally he will listen. And, um, and uh, pull the thing away. No, because chocolate, no good for dogs. It can kill them if they eat a lot of it. Um, and uh, now he sort of uh, will retreat from the table and, and his ears drop and he looks at me with a, a face that, you know, it's a very sad face. And ears drop about an inch. And it's, he's saying, why are you shouting at me? And I'll say, because deep down, although I'll never admit it to my wife, I do love you. <laughs> and um, we want you around for a few more years. We don't want you to do it now. Of course. Stop. Why? Because we care for you. Now, people, parents will do that in much more profound ways. The toddler who grabs the bottle of bleach. <gasps> Stop. Because we care for you. Lots of different areas, of course. Here, stop, because we love you, and we want you to hold on to the truth, and we want other people to hear that God is a saviour, and not get distracted. Sometimes loving someone means telling them the truth, even though it causes conflict. Now, of course, you don't want truth without a loving delivery, and nor do you want someone who has a very lovely demeanour but never holds, never teaches the truth. And let's never be a church which pits those two things against one another. Love and truth were meant to dance together, not skulk alone. Okay, you hold them together. They dance together. So encourage the sound doctrine that brings love, Paul would say. Okay, let's just draw back for a couple of minutes as, as we bring it to a close. Um, how do you think Paul felt getting this letter? Sorry, excuse me. How do you think Timothy felt receiving this letter? Oh, well, that's a stupid question. We don't know what sort of temperament he is. But most of us will think, gulp. I've got to stand up publicly and tell the people, like leaders in the church, to stop. Oops. That's going to be awkward. Uh, how do you think Timothy was received when he stood up in church one day and said, look, I've got to tell you, him and him, never listen to them. And in fact, we should send them out of the church and not let them be part of our gathering on a Sunday. How do you think the church responded to that? I imagine some who are pretty fed up with the false teaching were thinking, at last. Others thinking, but they're my mates. How dare you? And most people are probably thinking, oh, I hate it when we have conflict. I can't bear it. Can't we just get on, you know. But you've got to do it. Sometimes you just have to do it. Because the hope of this city is that God is a saviour. The hope of our nation is that God is a saviour. The hope of this world is that God is a saviour. And if people are distracting from that, marginalising, sidelining the truths of the Scriptures, fundamentally the most important truth, that God is a saviour, that there is a heaven, there is a hell, there is eternity, and you need saving from hell, for heaven, forever. You're distracting from those things. We've got to call people back to them. And that's loving, says Paul. The command of this, excuse me, the goal of this command is, it's loving. So the most loving thing we can do is to be very clear on this message, that the need that God need, that people need God as a saviour. And so next weekend, yes, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, many of us will wander out and be involved in walk-up evangelism, and we may uh, have a temperament which quite likes that, or may have a temperament which thinks we'd rather be swallowed up by the ground. 
But it's a good reminder to you and me of what's central to the Christian faith, that people need to hear that God is a saviour, and people do need to hear that God is a saviour. And so as a church, that's what we want to care about. There are lots of things to get right, lots of things which matter, but nothing is as important as the fact that God is a saviour. Chapter 1, verse 15. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That must be central. That truth advances God's work. That is the truth we must sing of. That is the truth we must speak of. God is many things, but fundamentally here, he's a savior. And we praise God for him. Let's pray together. Our great God and Father, we, I think we can recognize in our own hearts sometimes the desire for novelty, for something speculative, something which will press fast forward on the Christian life. Would we be wise? Would we be shrewd? Would we test everything against the Scriptures? Would we hold firmly to the revealed truth that you've given us in the Bible and its plain teaching, its plain meaning, rather than drift off into speculation, which would only lead to controversy and division. Father, above all, would we hold to the most central truth of the Scriptures, that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners? Would that be what obsesses us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.